you know, that, uh, <clears throat> that phrase in that song just really hit me Friday night. Uh, all my life, you have been faithful. Not just all my Christian life. Now let that sink in a minute. All of my life, you have been faithful. Before I even cared about being faithful to you, you were faithful to me. All my life, you have been faithful. The minute we begin to think that our life can be explained in terms of us, we lose the sense of wonder of how faithful God is. We are drawing breath today because he is faithful to us. All those times when we didn't want anything to do with him, he was faithful to us. The times we didn't pursue him, the times we were thinking that our life could be explained in terms of ourself, behind the scenes, he was faithful to us. Hope you let that resonate in your heart this week. All my life, he has been faithful. The wonder of God, finally get to get there. You're probably so tired of these passages by now, and you probably have them memorized, but let's do it again. Luke 7. Luke 7. Three things that I want to share with you this morning. No, that's not right. There's more than three. Why lie? At least three things I want you to understand about what I share this morning, okay? First of all, this may not challenge what we believe about God's love, but I'm pretty sure it will challenge most of what we practice about God's love. Let me say that again. This may not challenge most of what we believe about God's love, but I'm pretty sure it'll challenge most of what we practice when it comes to God's love for us and then in turn God's love of how he loves and who he loves and others. There seems to be, and there's always a tension between what we believe and what we live. And if you don't think there is, there is these things called blind spots. I mean, do you have a blind spot? It's best just say yes. Because you don't know you have it because you're blind. That's the point. You don't know you've got it because you're blind to it. But it's there. All of us have those. And if it's, it's revealed, especially in what we say, we believe about God's love and what we practice about God's love. 
his love for us, his acceptance for us. And what's really challenged me is who God loves. You know, they're talking about sending people to Mars. It's a several-year trip just to get there. I'm okay with that if they'll let me pick the people. Sometimes we want to pick who God loves. We have this misunderstanding that we pick who God loves because that's who God, that's who I love. But there's a vast chasm many times between what we believe about God's love and what we practice about God. Second of all, you'll notice that I don't draw any conclusions about what I'm going to share. Conclusions have gotten me in more trouble. Conclusions eliminates the mystery. When I draw conclusions that God didn't draw, I've just blinded myself to a mystery. And Brennan Manning says this, mystery is an embarrassment to the modern mind. We tend to think everything must yield to our intellectual prowess. If we can't figure it out, we'll pretend we have it figured out. I'm not going to draw conclusions. The conclusion will speak for itself. And if God reveals it in your heart, maybe he'll draw a conclusion there. Here's the third thing. What we believe, what we believe about God's attitude towards us when we sin becomes our attitude towards others when they sin. What we believe to be true about God's attitude towards us doesn't even have to be true. It's just what we believe to be true. What we believe to be true about God's attitude toward, to, towards us becomes our attitude towards others when they sin. If we have this sense when we sin that there's pending judgment, that God's wringing his hands, laughing in glee, ha, <laughs> I got you now. We're going to tend to project that onto other people. You got what you deserved. Wonder. Something strange. Causing the beholder to marvel. Amazement. To render immovable. Either in our steps or in our mind. We see something wonder and we stop. Walking disturbs the wonder. Moving disturbs the wonder. The same is true in our mind. When we see something wonderful in our heart, our mind just camps there. Wow, look at that. How amazing and wonderful that is. It's rapt attention or astonishment at something 
awesomely mysterious or new to one's experience. I want you to work with me this morning, okay? And I want you to, well, we'll get there in a minute. Let me make this statement first. Much of the, much of the wonder of God that we experience comes when we discover that God isn't at all like we've believed him to be. We go like, wow, I thought God was, but I'm discovering he's wonder appears. This certainly is true of his love. Specifically to whom and how he demonstrates his love. As long as we believe we have complete understanding of his love, or as long as we believe our understanding of him is completely accurate, we'll miss out on the wonder that is found in his love. So I want you to entertain this possibility with me this morning. I want you to entertain the possibility that you don't and I don't know everything there is to know about God's love. Could you, could you just kind of embrace that a little bit? Okay, maybe there, maybe there's something I don't know. And then I want you to entertain this as well, which may be more difficult. I want you to entertain the possibility that maybe there are some things about God's love that I have believed that aren't true. See, it's easier for us to miss we don't know something. It's easier for us to admit we don't know something than it is for us to admit what we know is wrong. Which as long as we adhere to the deception that everything we know is right, we will never know what we don't know. His love becomes no greater than our understanding. And we mistakenly believe his love is like our love. Who we love is who God loves. How we love is how God loves. When that happens, our sense of wonder is lost. Replaced with our mental understanding of God's love. You'll discover in these passages and others that we're going to deal with that love is directly related to forgiveness. John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. For what did Christ lay down his life for his friends? That they might be forgiven. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What did he give his son for? Because he knew partly that we needed forgiveness. Our view of God's love is directly related to how we believe God has forgiven us and how he relates to us when we sin. In turn, we deal with others that way. We believe God deals with us that way. 
Are you ready to see some wonder? Okay. Because I left these passages, my mind blown. Let's look at them. Luke chapter 7. You know the story. and We've read it a bunch of times, but we're going to read it again. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. It leaves it to our own interpretation what kind of sinner she was. It leaves it to our own judgmental interpretation of what kind of a sinner she was. He doesn't spell it out. He doesn't give detail. He simply says, there was a woman who was a sinner. Could have been an adulteress. Could have been an addict. Could have been a lesbian. Could have been the homeless. Could have been a prostitute. Could have been a transgender. Could have been a Democrat. Could have been a Republican. Could have been a liberal. Could have been a conservative. Could have been black. Could have been Hispanic. Could have been white. Could have been a Mexican. Could have been your ex-spouse. Could be a sibling. Sinner. It just sums it up as someone that a Pharisee would deem unlovable, unforgivable, and unworthy of their love. Not specific. Which begs the question, what sin in others brings out the Pharisee in us? What is it that I see flawed sin obvious in other people that causes me to react like these Pharisees did with judgment and criticism? He goes on down and he says, when she leaned that he was, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Kept wiping him with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing him with the perfume. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him that she is a sinner. Note this about the Pharisees. We're going to see more about them later. A Pharisee has a view of God formulated from personal conclusions drawn from life's experience and from Scripture. Anything outside of that can't be God. They had this mindset of what God was like. They had this understanding of what God was like. And they watched Jesus and they said, 
this is outside of my understanding of God because I know about God. I have had all this life experience. I have all of this history, and I know Scripture, and this isn't God. Because he, God wouldn't do this. Anything outside that mindset can't be God because he knows. And he loses his sense of wonder. There's not even the possibility, wow, I wonder if this is God. They knew. They had it figured out. They had their conclusion. This can't be God. What they were saying is, God isn't like this. Now remember this. Everything Jesus says and does is explaining to us the Father. Everything Jesus says and does is him explaining God to mankind. The Pharisees, we don't need an explanation. We know what God's like. We know how God deals with us, and we know how God deals with sinners. And this is not how God does it. And Jesus came and explained what God was really like. And notice what he said. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. He said to him, you have judged correctly. Remember what I said earlier? Love is directly related to forgiveness. It may be the greatest expression of love there is. You want to know how much this guy loves? Look at how much he forgave. Direct correlation. This guy was forgiven little, he loved little. This guy was forgiven much, he loved much. Now, listen, all of us are forgiven the same amount. It didn't take more death for you to be saved than it took for me to be saved. So he's talking about your perception. How much do you think you've been forgiven of? Well, I perceive that I have been forgiven a ton. I might perceive I wasn't so bad. You know what? doesn't matter whether you think you were bad or not. It took the death of cross to provide, the death of Jesus to provide forgiveness for you. That's how much you had sinned. That's how much we had sinned. What if this statement is true? Okay? What if this statement is true? We haven't expressed love until we have expressed forgiveness. We certainly know the amount is relevant, 
I suggest if we haven't forgiven, we haven't expressed love. How can we say we love someone and want to keep them in bondage to their sin? 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, Love does not what? Keep an account. Love doesn't have a ledger. Huh? This is what they did to me. And how quickly we can recall it. How quickly we rehearse it. I was wrong. This was done to me. I've got an account right here. See, I've got the wound. I've got the pain. I've got the hurt. But I love them. What if they're related? Now bear in mind, these passages reveal first and foremost how God deals with sinners and how he deals with us when we sin. That's important. Look what he said, turning toward the woman. He said, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She was wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. She anointed my feet with perfume. This reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins have been Forgiven. How we deal with others starts with how we believe God deals with us. Jesus responds to this sinner and he says, your sins have been forgiven. What's he doing? He is explaining God's response to her and her sin. Not the Pharisees, Jesus. I forgive you. He is explaining God's response to her as a sinner and to us when we sin. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that when we sin, God's there saying, I forgive you. No, I have to go to the penalty box. I have to be in timeout. You can't use me for a while. I can't come to you. Now look in John chapter 8. No conclusion. Keep looking. John chapter 8. Here's the one. Early in the morning, he came again unto the temple, and all the people were coming into him, and he sat down and began to teach them. Scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. There's the Pharisees again. Brought a woman caught in adultery. Having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law... Moses commanded. Here they are again. 
by invoking the law, by invoking scripture, they're saying, this is God's attitude towards this woman. Stoner. Thereby justifying their religious indignation towards her. I am justified in my judgment of this person because I know God's perspective and I know God's attitude towards this and God hates her. And we're here representing him to carry out what he wants. Wow. Jesus says not so much. They were formulating a view of God from their history and scripture as seen from the heart of a broken, religious, self-righteous human. They were formulating a view of God from their history and scripture as seen from the heart of a broken, religious, self-righteous man, human. She deserves this. They had forgotten about all the times that God forgave Israel for being so belligerent and being so stubborn and being so sinful. But they had formed a perspective. They were here representing God. We are here representing God, and this is God's attitude towards her. When right in front of them, Jesus was explaining God from a heart that knew him intimately and personally. He was the image of the invisible. Where would you like to get your interpretation of God from? Where would you like to draw your perspective of God from? He knew God by revelation of the Spirit and not through conclusions drawn from his own mind. Pharisees believed they were acting on God's behalf, referring to the Word when the living Word was standing right in front of them. They were drawing from the word when the living word was right here in front of them. What did Jesus say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Jesus stopped down, stepped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. Now, there's always a way around the law. There's always a way to work the law to say what you wanted to say. They came to Jesus and says, the law says to stone women like this. But that's not what the law said. The law said stone the man and the woman caught in adultery. Now, last time I checked, adultery required two. I mean, I've never been there, but I... From the definition, I understand. We always speculate on what Jesus wrote on the ground. I had a new thought this week. I think he probably wrote, where's the man? 
Where's the man? And if they caught her in the act, like Paul said, they knew something. I wouldn't be surprised if the man wasn't the one dragging her before Jesus. They were saying this, testing him, that they might have grounds for accusing him. Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straight up and said, he was without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. Stooped again, wrote on the ground. They heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older one. Left alone, and the woman who was there in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, paraphrase, addendum, okay? I'm fixing to explain God to you. Okay. I'm about to explain God to you. Here, yeah, you were caught in adultery. Here, you are a sinner. But I am about to explain. They, they told you what God was like, but I am fixing to explain God and his attitude towards you. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go now from here and sin no more. How many times do we stand in judgment of someone's sin? Not only someone else, but our own. How many times do we stand in judgment of ourselves, drawing conclusions in our mind about how God is and what he's like when the very living word is inside of us longing to reveal what the Father's heart is towards us and towards this person? I don't know about you, but there were a couple of phrases in these two passages that really just rung my bell. One, I do not condemn you either. Two, your sins have been forgiven you. These passages challenge much of what we believe is necessary in order to get God to forgive us and in turn to love us. It challenges how we believe God deals with sinners And it challenges how we believe God deals with us whenever we sin. Because we have an understanding of what it takes to get God to forgive us. And if love and forgiveness are closely associated, what we're really saying is there are a lot of things we know you have to do in order to get God to love you. But you notice the absence of something in these passages. There's no sinner's prayer. No four spiritual laws. No penance required. No confession of his lordship. The second woman did call him Lord. No, I'm so sorry for my sins. No repentance required. Is it bad enough yet? No assurance that they won't go sin again. And no promise to quit sinning was required in order for Jesus to extend forgiveness. 
No clean your life up and then come before you can touch Jesus. No reliving all the things and all the times they had sinned. Pretty much none of the things we need, think is necessary in order for God to forgive us are not there. Now, before you jump to your explanation of that, that you draw from your conclusions, let it rest. Just let it sit. Just let the wonder of God's love that expressed forgiveness to these two women and the, 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 the rich young ruler, I mean, the, uh, the prodigal son, he had a speech prepared, never did get to finish it. Ah, forget all that. Bring the calf, the ring, the robe. Let's celebrate. The thief on the cross. Remember me. What'd that mean? What did that mean? None of them asked Jesus to forgive them. And he forgave them anyway. Jesus saw a broken life that needed to be relieved of the guilt and the weight of the sin, not judgment or religious instruction. And thereby, he explained to us God's attitude towards us when we sin and towards sinners that don't know him. We create all kinds of religious hoops we think we have to jump through in order to get God to forgive us. Then we in turn transfer that into how we forgive others. I might forgive them if they come to me and own up to everything they did. And then let me explain to them how it made me feel, how they hurt me. And then get them to understand how I felt because of what they did. Really what we're saying is, I want them to feel the way I felt. I want them to hurt the way it hurt me. And until that scale is balanced, no way. I want them to promise they will never do it again and to live up that promise. I want them to really mean it. I have a really mean it meter. And I know when they really mean it, when they really don't mean it. I want them to really mean it and then and ask forgiveness and then Maybe I will forgive them. And we are echoing all the things we believe God requires of us before he will extend forgiveness to us. Where do you think we got that stuff from? We think God wants us to do all that stuff before he'll forgive us. None of the people in these passages ever asked for forgiveness 
And yet we see the Father, through Jesus, extending it. You're forgiven. Is that the first thought that comes to your mind when you commit that sin that you've struggled with for the 14,392nd time? Is that the first thing you hear? You're forgiven. I forgive you. Or do you hear, you've done it now. See, I told you you didn't mean it last time you rededicated. I don't know about you, but these passages, have absolutely shattered my understanding of God's love. Now, before you start, well, what about this? What about that? You're looking for a conclusion. Just let it sit. Let it sit. I'll answer a bunch of your questions next week. But for right now, let it sit. Okay? Let it just settle into your heart. Boy, I thought God had all these things I got to do. And yet he's extending forgiveness. I forgive you. No promise you never do it again. I forgive you. Are you telling me that I can do anything and God will forgive me? No, I'm telling you better than that. You can do anything and God has already forgiven. Jesus understood the weight of the sin was heavy enough. They needed some good news. I'm telling you, folks, what we call good news sometimes ain't all that good. If it was good news, people would want to hear it. I think we need to change our message to good news. Here's the good news. You're forgiven. You're forgiven, man. No matter what you've done, you're forgiven. God forgave you. You're forgiven. You're already forgiven. Past, present, future, you're forgiven. I don't know about you. First thought is, that's just too good to be true. But it's true, and it's good. He's forgiven. Let that sit. The wonder of God's love. Are you amazed? I'm amazed. I think you're crazy. I think you've gone off the deep end. I think you've lost it. Well, you don't know half of it. I'm telling you, it created in me a sense of wonder that God's love is so much bigger than I ever expected it to be. And I found myself Step one, wanting to respond to people differently. I want to be an explanation of the Father to the world.
and I'm not that sometimes. I'm a Pharisee. I've got a judgment. It's biblical, scriptural. I can show you. This is a sword. I can whack you to death with it and still be scriptural. But the living word says, here's the father. Here's what he's like. Sit on that. Meditate on it. Ask the father to show you. So, father, we love you because you first loved us. You have been faithful to us all of our life. You are beginning to reveal to us just how wonderful your love really is. Forgive us for saying that we represent you when we really don't. We're really not explaining you. Forgive us for being more like Pharisees. Thank you for your forgiveness. I ask you to just quicken our heart this week. Let us see how vast, how wonderful your love really is beyond anything we can comprehend. We're not going to get it with our brain. We're only going to get it by experiencing it. Let us experience it. Let us see that revelation that Jesus came to reveal of what the Father was really like. Thank you. Bless you. Praise you for not giving up on us when we're so stubborn and hard-headed about what we believe. Forgive us for arguing scripture with you. How foolish. What you know about God, you know because you've spent eternity with him. So much of what we know about him we got from Sunday school. Some preacher who had an agenda. We've not gotten it by revelation. We ask you to reveal to us the love of the Father by the Holy Spirit who's come to lead us into all truth. Let that be the revelation of your love for us and your love for others. And we bless you for that in Jesus' name. Any questions? And if you ask me a question I'm going to answer next week, I'll say, come back. Yes, please do. I think that mic's still on. Passion Translation got lots of cool notes in it about the original texts. Um, this is the note on John eight eleven. Uh, well, first of all, there's lots of um, versions of John's gospel, both in Aramaic and in Greek, because people were copying it down and you know spreading it around. So. These are all available to any translator, so they have to take all these different versions and decide what's going to be there and what's not, and so on and so forth. So, the Passion Translation says, It should be noted that this entire episode is missing in the majority of the most reliable Greek manuscripts. There are some manuscripts that have this story at the end of the book of John, and at least two that include it in the Gospel of Luke. Many scholars surmise that this episode in the ministry of Jesus was added after the Gospel of John had been completed. However, 
It is the conclusion of this translation that the above text is indeed an inspired account of the ministry of Jesus and may have been deleted by many translators and copyists who doubted that Jesus could tell an adulterer that he would not condemn her. (laughs) Augustine, one of the early church fathers, mentioned this story and stated that many translators had removed it because they interpreted it as Jesus giving license to immorality. God's grace always seems to startle the religious. It's good. See, are you going to love me more because I forgive you or because I judge you? Well, we know the answer to that. All right, just spend some time with the Lord on that.